Hello and welcome to Plot Trists. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're reviewing My Lady Quicksilver by Beck McMaster. This was published in 2013 and is number three in the London Steampunk series. So we've already reviewed the first two books in this series. It is a alternate universe where um, Victorian era-ish where the nobles in society are vampires and they are literally repressing the humans and forcing the proletariat to give blood. Yes. It's, it's actually funny. I've been thinking about this because we're like, it's alternate universe, Victorian London. And I'm like, wait, you can't really call it Victorian London because the queen's name is not Victoria, but you can't call it something else because then people wouldn't understand when the heck it's set. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why I was thinking about that recently, but I was like, it's not really Victorian, but you know. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. But I'm just thinking in terms of like, it's late 1800s, I guess. Yeah. Which in yeah. Britain you assume is the Victorian era. So um, the first two books in this series, as you guys may recall, takes place in sort of the underworld. The first book is about like the leader of the underworld in terms of like criminal syndicate, like, lower class part of town right the second one is also about that group of people and this one totally shifts perspective we're now completely inside the city walls in the way that the last book we only sort of started to be and this is a romance between two characters that have previously been introduced in the series that is that that is the case yes one thing I would like to say is that the two previous books were like lower class you know in the the slums or, or whatever uh with a little bit of high class dabbling this one is sort of middle class which I thought was a really interesting place to go mm-hmm. so uh, as Lane said the blue bloods or the the vampires are the the aristocracy basically and you have to be specifically chosen to become a blue blood. Now, there are mistakes. Mistakes are made sometimes, and there are blue bloods that are created who are not part of the aristocracy, and so they are, they're not nobles, but they have to do something with them because they, you know, they are super strong and they are better than humans. So they have a few more privileges, but basically unless they're killed, because sometimes they are killed outright. They are sometimes killed outright, but if they're not killed, then they are made um, part of the police force basically of the city. So either they're made the, the Prince consorts, personal guards, the cold brush guards, or they are made part of the night Hawks, which in my mind are the Bow street runners. Yeah, I think it's sort of a combination of Bow Street Runner and SWAT team. Yeah, definitely. So it's, it's like, they're, I think they're more, the Bow Street Runners to me are like the best detectives of all time. Mm-hmm. The Nighthawks are a little bit more militarized. They are, they are. Than the Bow Street Runners. I agree. I specifically call it the Bow Street Runners though, because of one of my favorite historical romances, uh, Lady Sophia's Lover. And part of the reason I call that out is because I do think there's a little bit of homage to that book in this one. 
Um, it's not a little bit, I would say. It's not a little bit, but it's also not, uh, it's also not highwayman levels. So I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't the rest of this book. The rest of the book is not a direct homage. Correct. But the nature of their relationship at its inception absolutely is. And I love it. I love it. Me too. Okay, so the jacket. Determined to destroy the echelon she despises, Rosalind Fairchild is on a seemingly easy mission. Get in, undercover the secrets of her brother's disappearance, and get out. In order to infiltrate the Nighthawks and find their leader, blue-blooded Sir Jasper Lynch, Rosalind will pose as their secretary. A dangerous mission, but Rosalind is also the elusive Mercury, a leader in the humanist movement. But she doesn't count on Lynch being such a dangerously charismatic man, challenging her at every turn, forcing her to reevaluate everything she knows about the enemy. He could be her most dangerous nemesis or the ally she never dreamed existed. Uh, I don't think I don't think it's that bad. Except that it doesn't talk about, you know, alternate universe, Victorian London, and vampires, really. Yeah, so I think this book jacket is accurate, but does not capture the spirit at all. And I do think it's missing the his motivation side. Mm -hmm. It is. So the non-spoiler, so she's Mercury. She's infiltrating his hideout not to find like random information or to help the movement but to try to find her missing brother mm-hmm. and he's got a timer where he has to find mercury or he's going to be killed right so i think like that's the real conflict in this book in a way is she's already questioning the movement she's in charge of before this book starts because of what it's done to her family specifically And he's got this timer on his head that regardless of what he feels for this new secretary, if he doesn't capture and betray the leader of the humanist movement, he will die. Mm -hmm. So, like, I just think this this jacket is spiritually not quite right and lower stakes than the book is. It it is. It is. It's all from her perspective. Um, And... Uh, well, let's. Why don't we talk about? Uh, why don't we do our summaries? Because I think I think I talk a little bit about Jasper in mine. Okay, go. Um, so as you know, we generate a random number every every episode. Uh, this for this episode, that number was nineteen. So here's my nineteen word summary. Who can resist a super straight laced Law and Order type who's also a vampire? Not the leader of the humanist resistance. And not us. And not us, no. So basically, Jasper is, he is the kind of hero that we love. Yes. So talk about, like, good, guy who will do bad things for great reasons. Yes. Jasper has such an ingrained sense of morality. And love about putting this book third in the series even though the character development you don't really need to read the previous books to get any sense of who these characters are 
But I think understanding the complexities of the society and that like he's not necessarily working for good guys or bad guys and her as the leader of the rebellion isn't necessarily the side of good or evil. Mm -hmm. Like having the complexity where this isn't just a situation of like she's on the good side and he's on the bad side makes this so much more complex and makes the decisions they make so much more nuanced. They really have to think about what their decisions mean to them and and what it means about their character as well as what it means for the wider world. And I mean, I think we're just suckers for the, the good guy who might have to do bad things for you. We absolutely are. But I think the point is like, he's not unquestionably following a blind moral code for a fucked up institution, which we've seen a couple of times over. Like, yes. He's operating by his own moral code, recognizing the flaws in the system, which I think is such a fun take that just would not have been possible in a shorter book or earlier in the series. Mm -hmm. It would have been really easy if this were the introduction to the universe to make the humanists super sympathetic Mm -hmm. and anyone allied with the echelon in any way the villain. Right. By starting in the underworld, sort of on the outside looking in and getting sort of outsider's perspective on the internal politics, I I think it just makes this a much stronger book because it doesn't have to do all that legwork to give the universe depth. Yes. That said, we did bitch and moan during the second book about all the extra exposition. In fairness, I think everything I'm saying was established in book one. I still think book, book two had too much. That said, I will absolutely contradict myself and say I ultimately think this one didn't have enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lane, what's your 19-word summary? Leader of a revolution falls for the man tasked with exposing her, and he's into both her assumed identities. I loved how that played out so much, Lane. I like, I just loved it. Okay, I love that so much, but I do have a question. Yeah. At the end of the second book, we will try to be spoiler free. Spoiler for the second book. Um, Lena and Will infiltrate the humanist compound and they're told basically that there's three people who interchange playing Mercury. Yeah. This book does away with that altogether. Roz is Mercury. The end. Yeah. Uh, I didn't care. Did I miss something? I don't care. Did I miss something? Okay. You did not miss anything. I think I think I could just accept it because I was like, oh, they were just they were lying to them, obviously. Totally fair. No, like this is this does not go into a bothered me. It was just something I thought at one point when she said so she obviously when she decides to go undercover as a secretary decides that the best way to take any suspicion off her would be for him to see Mercury when she's with him. Mm-hmm. And to me, this was a non-issue because if all three people were had at times played Mercury, even though they don't necessarily meet her description, mm-hmm. like let him on to the fact that Mercury is a concept and not a person. Yeah. But at no, and, and like, I feel like if that were true, there'd also be an internal monologue about like taking one Mercury achieves nothing. Yeah. And like that was completely absent. And it was just a little bit like, Oh, this is not going where I thought it was obviously going to go based on the end of book two. Yeah. That. So uh, tropes. We already talked about the the criminal and policeman, so law and order kind of trope going on. Yeah, um, and the flip side of that is 
boss secretary. Yeah. Yeah. Which we often hate, but we liked it in Lady Sophia's Lover, and we liked it here. <laughs> what is what is a rule if it's not meant to be broken, Lane? First of all, in both those cases, the women are secretaries under assumed identities, actually working for their own purposes to overthrow the man in question. Correct. So the fact that they are not actually, I think, subordinate women depending on this job for their livelihood, even if the boss doesn't know that, does somehow make it more palatable to us. And also in both of those situations, how many times do we have to say it? It just makes it more palatable that the man, the person in the, the position of superiority, recognizes it and has some issues with it, even if he ultimately gives in. Yeah, like Jasper is beating himself up the whole time. Like if he knew any of his men were thinking of her in the way he's thinking of her, he'd have them strung up. I love it. Okay. I mean, okay. I'm... Meg and I have talked before about how we're both really into video games. Mm-hmm. Everything about Jasper's look as described in the book was so video game character. Like he has this black bodysuit that's like molded to him and it was just, oh my God, you are every like anti-hero I have ever crushed on in a video game. Okay. He has like the long, the long duster that, yep. you know, flaps behind him when he walks. You know, he he's he's 100% yeah everything about jasper basically hit our buttons yeah um there's also we talked about honor both of them sort of have their own sense of honor and are trying to navigate doing the right thing both within the organizations they independently work for and within their own moral code right right and jasper is he's the head of the nighthawks so part of his sense of honor, even if he doesn't really necessarily believe in the mission from above, he does feel an obligation to his men, to his subordinates, to make sure that he's taking care of them. And I think because he's aware his team is made up entirely of misfits and social outcasts, Right. Many of whom have found a sense of belonging or a stay of execution by virtue of their membership in his organization. There's kind of this even more intense feeling of obligation for him. Like mm-hmm. this for you was your way out. Failure to protect you. You might as well just have gotten axed by the executioner. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, so complicated. and I loved it so much. I love it. I can think of so many heroes who I just crush on who have this, you know. <laughs> this so um, she has like a billion daddy issues. And so does he. But I want to mm-hmm. talk about hers first. Okay. So she is the child of a member of the echelon and one of his thralls. Mm-hmm. And so for whatever reason, the implication is spousal abuse. Her mother took the three kids and fled mm-hmm. when she was a child, died very quickly. The kids ended up sad, tra- tragic orphans raising themselves on the street, except one day their bio dad sees them, takes them back in and proceeds to train them all and abuse them all into being assassins. 
Correct. I think I think the proper the proper verb is grooms, right? He grooms Groom, them to sure. the session, right? Yeah. Yes. So while acting as an assassin, um, she obviously constantly has assumed identities and has this very dark past that like weighs on her. And then when she takes over the humanist, she does so under a fake name and an assumed identity. And then when she's a secretary, she's under an assumed identity. And then she develops this identity of Mercury to like lead the humanist. So she has so many fake identities and she's definitely the trope of my real identity doesn't fit me anymore. What even is real? What What is real? What is my identity? How do I define myself? I don't hate it. Yeah, like the orphan girl on the streets is so far from who I am now that name is unrecognizable to me. But she's also refusing to be this assassin anymore. So. Right. And the thing she felt the closest to was being her dead husband's wife. Oh, by the way, tragic dead husband who was murdered in front of her <laughs> because like, why not? This yeah. she, Her whole life is basically tragedy porn. It is. But... I didn't I didn't hate it the way sometimes I do. Me neither. And I think it's because the narrative was mostly focused on what she's made of herself since all of that. Right. Like this book is not her clawing herself back from the tragedy porn. This book is she clawed herself back from the tragedy porn by leading this revolutionary movement. And now she's trying to assess what place that all has in her life now. So I think it made it made it feel not gratuitous and it yes. made it feel not like the most important part of the text. Exactly. Uh, and then, so we've just talked about how she's got a million assumed identities. There's this trope that I love. It's it's really sort of a superhero trope, but it's how you are jealous of yourself. So it's, you know, it's when yes. Superman, it's when, it's when Superman, or sorry, it's when Clark is jealous of Superman with Lois. Mm-hmm. or it's when Percy is jealous of the Scarlet Pimpernel with Marguerite, right? Mm-hmm. It, you are jealous of the way your significant other acts with your assumed identity. <laughs> well, and I think in the romance novel genre, it most frequently occurs when one partner disguises themselves at a mass ball or a yeah. brothel. Um, with the explicit intention of like finally consummating a relationship that's only yep. been usty in real life. Yes. And so like, um, oh God, the Raven Prince. Yes. So like the Raven Prince or uh, Thief of Shadows, both of them. Yep. So Elizabeth Hoyt uses this trope to great, <laughs> to um, to wonderful effect, I should say. <laughs> so good. It is done so well here, and partially because this book is so long. You get a lot of scenes between him and his secretary and him and the leader of the revolutionary movement that happen at different points in the text in context of like the wider plot, where I feel like in a a shorter book with a less well-developed universe, there more time would have had to been spent on other things. Right. So I really loved, I loved even his own reflection on who both of the women were to him I he it was so great Lane and like would it have been shitty if you didn't know they were the same person maybe but they were the same person so who cares it was sex magic it will we'll get into it because there's this there's this like 
there's this sex continuum that mm-hmm. that you you basically see from his perspective and it's amazing and it's not as simple as the madonna and the horror no. which made it so much better <laughs> we loved jasper guys we just love jasper he is the angsty final fantasy hero of my dreams <laughs> I, I love when they're just angsty, inter- like, just in their own heads, you know? Well, and the fact, too, that he's done something so productive. Yeah. With all of his angst is also really appealing. I don't know, guys. I just have it really bad for him. Anyway. <laughs> all right. Um, I think we already talked about this briefly, but he, as well as all of the Nighthawks, are outcasts from the aristocracy. He's just a little bit different because he chose to be an outcast. That he is wasn't, true. So usually, like Meg said, there are people who were turned by accident or people who were turned intentionally but shouldn't have been. He, by birthright, had the right to be turned because of a falling out with his father. Mm-hmm. His father was going to deny him it. And sort of to take control of his own destiny, even though in hindsight he realizes he was being manipulated, he chose to be turned as like a middle finger. Yeah, yeah. Which I fucking love. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, And then there's this other trope that happens a lot in these books. I think it happens a lot in vampire romances in general. Paranormal. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a, there's a sex trance. And we, I know we talked about this in the novella, one of the Halloween novellas we read. Yeah. But like Meg said, it happens. So first of all, I think anytime there's a werewolf or a vampire, and especially in this series, the idea of like being a bonded pair or a mate keeps coming up. And like, so first of all, sex with that person is like absolutely mind blowing. You're basically a possessive mess, whatever, whatever. It goes beyond that in this book. There is a magic chemical that makes vampires crazy. Mm -hmm. And first of all, in order to um, control him when he's under those effects, she's like, you know what might be more intense than his desire for my blood? His desire for my body. Basically, basically she's like, oh, he's going to rip my heart out. Wait, what if I I show him my boobs instead? (laughs) Maybe this will work. Yeah. it, It does. Well, and hilariously, like, this chemical toxin is, like, intense and stays in his system, and, like, they don't know what to do. And for a book that got so sciencey in the first two, they do not try very hard to explain how it works. And he didn't care. So in order to um, get him back to himself, she does have to seduce him. She she has to. She, yeah, that's the only way to break him out of his sex-slash-violence trance. Yeah. Is sex, yeah. <laughs> What you gonna do? So you know, it's necessary. Um, and then just a trope that I think we've seen a couple of times, most notably for me in Vorkosigan, where you find out an old love triangle that the hero had been involved in ends up being relevant to mm-hmm. the plot several decades later. Yes, yes. I I thought it was really interesting here, too, because as Lane says, this is several decades. We're not talking about, like, two decades, either. We're talking about, like, four decades. Yeah. But 
but um, it's, I, I thought it was interesting because she really, she leaned in. She leaned into, if this is the world that we're in, this is what would happen. So he sees his old flame who is now in her 60s or 70s. Yeah. So. We're at the, mo she might even be as young as in her 50s. Yeah. But. But time has not aged him and she is recognizable to him, but barely. So it was, I, I really liked that McMaster did not, she didn't pull away from that. She didn't hide yeah. that. This is, this is the world that they live in. This is the world. This is what would happen, you know? Yeah. So I, I appreciated that. Well, and I, I just loved the way it was incorporated in the plot too. Like Jasper is such a trope in that he is the overworked leader of an underappreciated industry who throws his whole identity into his job. And this is almost every cop character you see in romance novels. And mm -hmm. in a modern context, I'd probably be nitpicking it. In a historical one, I'm like, the first Bobbies, go for it. <laughs> Look, I'm recognizing my own hypocrisy, but I think I really love it as a romance hero trope, even if yeah. I don't love modern cop novels. No, it's it's true. It's very true. But we also love, and this is the case, the, the, the historical cops that we love are, like, they follow all the rules. I think that's part of the thing, too. Except yeah. for the bad ones. Well, right, but <laughs> we're we're at a point where the bad rules are like about sucking people's blood and stuff, so not about getting warrants. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, 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 right. Fair enough. Fair enough on that point. I was gonna say though, like Jasper clearly tolerates some radical views amongst his staff. Like right. they might not be humans, but they're still disenfranchised in society. So it's no surprise that even though they're basically a tool to support the echelon, the echelon isn't necessarily viewed favorably amongst his staff. And he's not a he he's not as hail queen and country as I think like Sir Ross was presented as in Lady Sophia's Lover. Yeah, that's fair. So, I mean, I'm sure you guys have figured it out by now, but we really liked this book a lot. Oh, my God. It was great. <laughs> Basically, I mean, at the end of the last book, you see Sir Jasper. He's told by the Prince Regent, you have got to find um, Mercury and bring him in to face punishment. Otherwise, I will kill you. And so Jasper's really buckling down. He's like, okay, I better find this guy. Plus, he also feels like this, the leader of the humanist movement has also done some pretty bad stuff, like actual bombs and, you know, things like that. So it's not just, it's not just. A duke is, well, and it's not just sedition. And it, it, he might have been a bad person, but a duke is dead. That too. So there's a lot of pressure on him from sort of all angles, because the other thing is knowing this humanist is on the loose, even if they're not a threat to the majority of the average people, it's creating a military state in the streets. Like society is getting really pissed. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the book starts out just, it starts out mid um, chase sequence. It's so exactly. freaking good. It's good. It starts in, what, what is it? In medias res, like in the action, mm. 
just that's what it starts out as. And of course, the the chase scene turns into makeout scene. So good. Okay. Do I? I would hate this if it were done poorly. Yeah. The two of them have such insatiable chemistry from the very beginning that like they cannot keep their hands off one another, even when it is a gross dereliction of duty. Mm-hmm. I find myself not caring. He's <laughs> like, and then the best part too is afterwards she's like, oh, it looks like they're looking for a secretary. I guess I'll just go apply. And her friends are like, are you sure? Like, didn't didn't you guys? They don't know that they've made out. And they're like, didn't she does say she seduced him? Yeah, but they're like, are you sure? He kind of he probably knows what you smell like at this point. She's like, no, it's the only way to get the information. And you're like, uh huh, sure. <laughs> but um, again, I loved it. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to not have this be an hour long episode where I'm just shrieking about all the random t- details I loved. Like, I love the way she dressed herself. Mm-hmm. I love the choice to be as natural as possible. As Rosa, she wears the wig as Mercury, mm-hmm. not as his secretary, even though her hair color is ridiculously distinctive. Yeah. And, like, there's just so many layers to the why that I won't get into. And, like, the, her choice of attire and what day she wears what dresses, like, this is not a woman who goes undercover and then attempts to disappear into the scenery. Right. No, no. She's definitely, like, I, I'm going to go undercover I th- I think she's like, yeah, I am going to seduce him into giving me all of his information. But also I'm going to seduce him because he's hot and why not? And I really enjoyed, I this is such a trope and this is the second chapter. So I'm going to say this is pretty spoiler free, you guys. Um, she does that thing where she's making out with him to distract him and has to knock him out. Yeah. And she says, we really wish I didn't have to do this. And it's. <laughs> such a trope but it's so good <laughs> I love it but this is also where the Lady Sophia's lover parallels come in because mm-hmm. in that book she basically has just decided that she's going to get proof of his wrongdoing to get revenge uh, and in this book she wants to infiltrate so that she can get information because her brother's still alive but other right. than that the first interview is very similar. She goes into his office and he basically gets like an instant erection, you know? Except in this case, he's like, oh my God, I'm still so turned on from having Mercury jump my bone. Right. He's like, oh, it's all because of what happened last night. It's not because of this specific person in front of me. Same person. Spoiler alert. Not spoiler alert. That's the whole plot of this book. It's the same person, but that's, this is, <laughs> I think is done so well, Lane. I love that. So if this is a vampire thing, right? Because mm-hmm. his, they, in this universe, McMaster refers to the vampire part of someone as like the dark part of them, their dark desires. It's And I don't actually know if it's McMaster or if it's, this is what the vampires themselves are thinking. Mm-hmm. because in his case, this dark part of himself 
obviously recognizes who she is in all of her disguises. So it's really kind of his subconscious, I guess, his subconscious desires. And when he can finally integrate them all together, he's like, oh, I should have known all along. I guess my vampire part was right and was trying to tell me something, you know? Right. Like, I I have kept my shit under control and never lost control and never had a sip of blood from a human vein Mm -hmm. in all of my time on this earth. And there have been two women who all of a sudden have me, like, tearing my hair out. Oh, wait. (laughs) Oh, Oh, wait. Yeah. Yeah. I, and they happen to have the exact same height and proportion. <laughs> that's correct. Although she mm-hmm. does, I mean, she does, she does throw the scent off a lot of different ways. So she, she does yeah. a good job of it. Not saying she doesn't. Just saying that there are some obvious signs. Basically, just trust your gut, I think, is what this subplot is. It's not a subplot. This is what this part of the plot is telling you is just trust your gut, trust your subconscious. Don't mm-hmm. deny, you know, what, what is, what your subconscious mind is telling you. Yes. Loved it. So good. Oh, okay. I also love, so I, this, I guess kind of hinges into sexiness, but it's really more about Jasper and trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. This but, whole book is so sexy. It's so sexy, right? So it's kind of hard to talk about the plot and not veer into sexiness. But sorry, guys. The, the specific thing. So he he meets Rosa. So she's she's going by Rosa as the secretary. Mm-hmm. So he meets her and he's immediately attracted to her. But he also meets with Mercury and he's attracted to her too. And he's like, ah, he's like, but obviously I'm not going to go for the criminal that I have to bring in and kill. I will go for the secretary. So they, they have this very sexy interlude that doesn't, unfortunately does not go all the way, does not end in orgasm for either of them. We'll just put it that way. It is a very coitus interruptus. Yes. And later that exact same day, he goes down to the steam baths. And Which, who should appear? By the way, he says in his own internal monologue, I guess you could call it my one indulgence. I'm sorry. Men whose only indulgence is their bathroom is a trope in and of itself at this point. It's very true. So he's down there indulging in his steam bath when who walks in but Mercury. And he's already on edge because he's basically been making out with Rosa all afternoon. But... Mercury takes things a, a step further. And after that, he's like, damn it. Now I have to break things off with Rosa. <laughs> well, I, I think like, okay. Twofold. Yeah. You, like, no, you're right. Me. Part of it is that he's feels bad, like basically trying to sleep with two women at once. And he feels like the fact that he acted so dishonorably means that he needs to break it off with the more honorable woman. But that's also sort of the moment where he makes the decision that, like, turning in Mercury is not going to be cut and dry for him. Mm-hmm. And while, like, that is hanging over his head and he's seriously considering, like, not going through with the thing that his life is dependent upon, maybe it's not a good idea to seduce the nice widow. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But I, I also want to point out that um, he definitely 
unlike some other people in this world, considers a blowjob to be sex. Because he's like, yes. okay, that happened. So I guess I cheated on Rosa. Even though we've never technically had a discussion about what we are, but I can only have lust for one person. <laughs> right. But then this, this is like, it's like a chain. So it literally he, that afternoon with Rosa, they're like having a sexy chess game, then sexy blowjob in the um, steam bath. Then yeah. he goes out with Rosa either the same day or 12 hours later. He goes, with no, it's Rosa. later that night. I was going to say it's like, <laughs> like right on the heels of it. And he's like, we have to break it off. And she's like, why? And this is when she gets jealous of herself. <laughs> I loved it. But they then that's when he gets the chemical that makes him go crazy. And then Rosa's like, oh, I better seduce him. So I do think the time frame of this book is very short. It is. I, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I'm pretty sure if you actually like mapped out the days, there are a couple of chunks where they're like, and two days later. So you've just mm -hmm. like lost two days in the text. But I think maybe only like five days are described on the page. Oh, I, I think it's I think it's maybe a week. Yeah, I agree. So just putting that out there for people who are like, can't do insta love. Oh, man, this is insta love with two women who are the same woman. And it's I mean, it's very vampire slash werewolf, whatever, which is that, you know, you catch a whiff of them and you know that they're the one for you. Yeah. So anyway, so guess the chemical which puts him into this sex slash violence trance. And then the only way he can get out of it is by having super sexy sex with Rosa. So at this point, he's like, okay, I guess I better break it off. Once he comes back to himself, he, he comes back to his senses. He's like, okay, I guess now I have to break it off with Mercury. Well, and apparently his number two in command explains that the fact that all he wanted in his sex trance was Rosa and that's all he would ask for. And he was like violently lashing out apparently meant that was like true love or some shit. I don't know. I don't care. I don't that's care. What, that's what the <laughs> darkness needed. Well, and also like he only comes out of it when she accepts the darkness. Mm -hmm. It is like so tropey. I cannot once again stress how little I cared. I was like, don't, yep. I'm here for this. Moving on. I just, I just loved it. Just like the, like the bam, 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 you know, okay. With her, no, I have to break it off. No, now I have to do this. Oh, I have to break it off with this one. I don't know. I just loved it. I loved every single part of it. It was so much fun. Yeah, no, it was his internal monologue. I really thought the two of their voices were very distinct. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah. And I think that's something I'm really coming to appreciate about Beck McMaster. Mm -hmm. And there were some parallels between Lena and, is she Honoria? Mm -hmm. um, but that made sense because they were siblings. Right. So like the fact that, like, I felt Mercury was a very distinct worldview from the two previous heroines in the series. And I think that the difference really stood out for me here. And I was, I, I, I think it would have been a weaker book. Especially yeah. by the third in the series, if all the if all the narrators seemed the same. Well, and Jasper was was different as well. The other two were more like honor among thieves, but J Jasper's idea of honor is very uh, it's very well developed. He it's something that he thinks about a lot, and mm -hmm. that is something that I 
love. I, I, if you go back and listen to several different of our podcasts, we talk about honor a lot. I actually was talking to my <laughs> husband the other day. <laughs> he was like, he does not read. He doesn't read very much of anything, but he definitely doesn't read romance novels. And he listened to like one of our shows and he just kept talking about honor. And I was like, what can I say? I was like, that's a big, it's like a huge thing for us. It's like, <laughs> it's like our biggest turn on, you know? One, the number of things we now say are about is kind of disturbing. <laughs> our biggest turn on. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> it's accurate, but also maybe, maybe we talk about this too much. <laughs> A turn on should be something described as R outside of a relationship. That's true. But I'm I mean I mean fictional. I, I know what you mean, Meg. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, anyway, um Jasper's great. Yeah, so Rosa is also great, and I feel like we're not doing her as much of a service as we could. She's really interesting because as we mentioned, she was an abuse trial. And for plot spoiler reasons we won't get into, she sort of ended up a humanist by accident. Mm -hmm. And it was to avenge her dead husband that she really became committed to the cause. But so they talk in the book, like, she didn't set up the networks that are in place. A lot of the plans that have been executed under her watch, even though her husband's dead, been dead for five years, were sort of put in motion prior to his death. Mm -hmm. And so she started leading this organization to continue his legacy. Right. And she agrees with humanism as a concept that like people deserve rights fundamentally, but these are not her methods. These are not her subordinates in the sense that she hasn't like created this organization from the ground up. Right. And so part of her process in getting to know Jasper is the, Maybe all of the people that aren't humans aren't the same after all. <laughs> and that made it sound dumb, and it's not dumb. It works very well. But I really liked the way she started critically thinking about not just carrying on this legacy to avenge her dead husband, but also thinking about how she actually felt she was best equipped to enact change. I I liked... so. I really liked that part of their relationship building for both of them was mm -hmm. thinking about how they interact with the systems that are in place, how they're, how they're rebelling against them or how they're complying with them and what that means. I just liked that the revolution subplot formed a part of their relationship plot as well. For so many reasons. Mm -hmm. because also like her family strife and the thing she's seeking is also tied up in the revolution. It was just, and the revolution is becoming more out in the open, attacking blue bloods more directly. And that's involving his line of work. So it's for all that I complained about the groundwork laid in the last two books, it does work well here. And if I actually have one complaint before we get into the stuff that I really loved again, some more, um, her whole motivation is supposed to be her two brothers and this best friend she rescued from her father as well. Mm -hmm. And I did feel like those relationships weren't as well developed as they could have been. Yeah. Especially yeah. given like 
there's some stuff that happens at the end that's just very cute, but I think it would have meant more if you knew more about her relationship with her brothers. Yeah. But, yeah, I I thought the ending of this book was really great. Uh, it just, it, it was well set up and it was pulled off so well. Just in general, yeah. I felt like the entire book was very cinematic. Yes. Lots of images that you would see straight out of science fiction or a noir film, like a like mm. giant fans, like the shadows of giant fans. Or we already talked about his outfit with the the leather armor and the dusty jacket and <laughs> all that stuff. But there's also there's a a woman Nighthawk who tries to be as androgynous as possible, but of course she gets to dress up for the opera and, you know, she comes down the stairs and it's amazing and I loved it. Well, and even, like, Mercury's outfits are very, like, steampunk, pirate, corseted badass. And she's dressed to seduce Jasper as his secretary. And then you do get to see her in a ball gown at the opera. Like, the costuming and the setting of this, if it were ever adapted... More than the first two, even, even though some of the stuff that took place at court would have been really fun. Like, it's it was opulent. Yes. Even in the moments that weren't necessarily high class. Yeah. And I felt like the ending fit in with that. It was a very cinematic action, action movie sort of ending. But the, the plot threads came together really well and just paid off really well. And I, I think that series has done a really good job. And again, I think I'm coming to appreciate the consistency of it more in this third book with wrapping up the story at hand, but definitely making you understand the wider world plot progressive and like progression. And I wouldn't necessarily call it a cliffhanger, but like at the end of the second book, you knew that the Duke who'd been killed was wrapped up in a bunch of stuff. You knew that the humanists were rising. You knew werewolves would be coming out in society and that there was all of this underlying uncertainty socially. The end of this book, obviously, Mercury's made some decisions regarding how she wants to handle the humanist push moving forward. But the way society writ large is viewing the humanists is changing and the humanists are now becoming suspicious of, like, who exactly is supporting them. So there's, like, and the power dynamics within the echelon have changed really dramatically by the end of this book. You can tell I'm dancing around some things to try to be spoiler-free. But so, like, I had no question about Roz and Jasper by the end of this book, except maybe what she wanted her name to be. Yeah. Um, but I have so, so many questions about, like, oh, shit, what happens next? Yes. Yeah. And I think that's the mark of a great ending, especially within a series like this. Yeah. So yeah, I, I thought this book was great. Uh, anything offensive? I mean, the, this series is very violent. Yeah. Women in, in general, extremely violent. Yeah. Many situations of domestic abuse. That is child abuse. Um, all of that is is here. As we said, she is technically his employee, if that bothers you. like. But for me, it's more content warnings. And frankly, it's more the stuff we've seen throughout the whole series than any specific this scene I found triggering. Yeah, yeah. The, the only one I could think of specifically. And again, I think it was less 
it's less offensive than it could have been in a different book because it was because of who she is. Basically, she was sexually extorted by her landlord. Her landlord was like, oh, you can't if you don't if you don't have the money to pay, we can come to another arrangement. Right. And Jasper comes and saves her. But what I liked is that he wouldn't have needed to save her. Obviously, Mercury can like she's a trained assassin. She could have, you know, killed this guy 10 Mm -hmm. different ways. But I really enjoyed it because she she had to it was more of her pretending to be helpless because she couldn't show him how she couldn't show to Jasper how um, how good she was. Right. Right. And there's there's a couple of layers to this. I, I think because we haven't had a normal human within society really focused on in the books yet. It was another way of portraying how vulnerable human women are like on the run from vampires and are at risk of being used for their blood constantly. But there is this more relatable risk that is also present. And she was, like you said, particularly equipped to defend herself. But I think what it also did was show a different side of him because not only when he's opposite does he tell the landlord never to F with her again. He point like says like you will never do this to anyone and we will be watching you. So it was also a moment for him because we'd seen him working for the echelon the whole book. Right. It was a moment for him to work on behalf of the humans. And of course, like I'm always gonna wish it was a way other than sexual assault, but in this case, because I think it did serve a plot purpose, both like you said, of making her appear helpless within the narrative intentionally as an act. Right. And allowing him to be nice to people, which we really hadn't gotten previously, yeah. it did serve a narrative purpose. It did. Uh, okay, how how sexy was this book, Lane? Meg, you told me it wasn't that sexy, and I am going to disagree. <laughs> I think what I mean is, it okay, it has a lot of sexual tension, and... Uh, the sexual tension is very high. So if you're looking at sexy that way, yes. However, there are many scenes where they are interrupted or she specifically does not get off, which annoys me. Fair, but for all of the scenes of like actual explicit sexual content are maybe more spaced out than they have been previously in this series. But that's not even true because Lena's book, it took a while. There are a lot of scenes where like she falls in the carriage and then she's, you know, between his legs and oh my God, Meg, there's carriage sex and we didn't even mention it. There's, oh, but I'm going to, anyway. Okay. Yes. Yes, there is carriage but sex. But the point is like, there's a lot of, she is the secretary is intentionally like standing too close to him and her skirts are brushing over his boots and, even when she's like sneaking into his rooms to inspect everything, she's like, should I go in his bedroom and leave my scent there? No, that's too much. I can't like, <laughs> it's constantly on the page. It, it is. I guess for me, I'm looking for, for me to consider a book sexy. I'm really looking for the, the female pleasure. And a lot of what she was doing was I'm going to make him want me, which is, which is fine. It's just not getting her off. Yeah, but I do think, I mean, look, I'm reading too much into this. Would I have been totally happy if she also had an orgasm? Yes. I think it was interesting narratively that she never had an orgasm as Mercury. I don't, look, I agree with you. But I didn't have to like it, though. 
No, and I will say we have both complained about blowjobs as empowerment language in romance novels sort of annoying us. It kind of worked for me here. Well, because she was of, manipulating yeah. the fuck out of him in that scene. <laughs> exactly. That's what I was saying. So I don't think it's like blowjob as empowerment, but it was it was yeah, no, but I I agree. The blowjob itself didn't bother me. <laughs> and like no, I, I get pissed sometimes at the way blowjobs are done in romance novels because it ends up being like there's nothing sexier for a woman than giving a man pleasure and it's like i would beg to differ Mm -hmm. nothing that can't be sexy but i'm saying i need it to be part of a wider concept Mm -hmm. um in this scene it wasn't about like her being so excited she could make this man crumble it was i am manipulating you six ways till sunday right now (laughs) well right but then he gets back at her by not making her come Correct. That said, he was manipulated six ways till Sunday and knew it. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, let's talk about um, bloodletting being sexy. There was so little of that in this book. I loved that there wasn't very much of it. There was one scene where she was like, "Would you be interested in having my blood?" And he was like, "You don't have to do that." And she's like, "I know I don't have to. I'm doing it for you." And guys, it was the first time he had ever taken blood from, like, from an actual woman. He, he usually drinks his blood cold. So is this like adjacent to Virgin Hero for you? That is correct. That is why okay. I liked it. <laughs> I was I was actually okay with it until after sucking the blood he made out with her and she was like and she could taste the coppery tang and I was like I was so okay with it up till this moment and I can't I can't get to the taste of her own blood in her mouth I can't do it I didn't I look I'm not saying I love that part because I didn't but (laughs) I will say a lot of times I'm just I'm not really just not that into the thing even though it's supposed to be sexy and blah blah blah. I'm like eh, okay but here I was like oh he's never done it before with anyone else So what can I say? Yeah, I, if that is the way you want to play it, that's fine. It wasn't the tie between blood and sex was not as explicit here. Right. Also, which I think like providing him sustenance as something he'd never done before was as much as it could have been decoupled from sex. Yeah. Because they talk about him drinking her blood even outside of sexual contexts when he's injured. Oh, because her comfort, obviously. I feel like there are some tropes at this point we just kind of forget to mention because they're so common. Yeah. Um, there is a little bit of the, you know, the the hunger being for blood or for sex. But it wasn't together, which, yeah. I'm not saying it didn't, like, yes, when he drank her blood, they were having sex. But... The concept of why he didn't drink blood and his sexual desire for her were decoupled in the text. Correct. Yes. And, I, um, I will say there were several sex scenes after the conflict had been resolved at various stages. Like, there was definitely a lot of sex as a demonstration of the progression of their relationship, not just as Meg has gone into great detail on in terms of the way he is viewing these two women in his mind, but also once he has reconciled them, the type of sex they have is very indicative of where their relationship is at in the moment, including some goodbye sex you don't know is goodbye. Right? 
trope. Um, but the fact that it does culminate, minor spoiler, in the carriage sex. Like, okay, sure. Why not just, I was already loving this book, Beck McMaster, and then you went, here's the bow. <laughs> so, um, I, I, I really like this book. I think it's the one I've liked the most so far in the series. Given that you've read the rest of them, that makes me very excited that you've done so far because I really like this. <laughs> I like I like the other books in the series too. I like this one a lot because it has a lot of my favorite tropes, and it's it's still very it still manages to be unique. I, that's what is really cool about this series, I think. Definitely. So as always, thank you guys so much for listening. If you're enjoying listening, we would love it if you would rate, review, subscribe, and check us out on the internet at Goodreads or at Plot Trists on Instagram.